as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you may be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the preaching of it, all the means you use to draw us after Christ, to draw us after you, to make us like our Savior. Bless Tom's teaching this morning that your church may grow from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. How many of you have ever been in a place that was absolutely pitch dark? No light at all. Where you couldn't even see your own hand two inches in front of your nose. Now imagine that you and several of your friends found yourself one night in a cave that was that dark, completely devoid of any light. All your cell phone batteries had already died, and the only available source of light was one single flashlight. It was a good bright flashlight, but that was it. That was all you had. And what if that cave was filled with dangerous drop-offs with slimy, narrow, algae-covered paths that slope down into jagged rocks 30 or 40 feet below. How valuable would that flashlight be to you then? Well, you'd, <laughs> you'd be very, very dependent on it. In fact, your dependence on that, on that one light would be profound. Uh, you would be disabled without it. If you didn't have it, you'd be on hands and knees crawling on those algae-covered paths, not having any idea if you were going in the right direction, not having any idea what lay ahead. That light would be the most valuable thing that you had. And you'd make very sure that whoever in your group was handling that light had it firmly strapped around his wrist and you would stay very close to that individual. That is the kind of attention that Peter is calling us in this passage to give to the Word of God as the light shining in a dark place. In order to understand the weightiness of what Peter is telling us here, we need to see this passage in its context, in the context of what came before it and what comes after it. 
In the first 11 verses of chapter 1, Peter talked about all that we have been graciously given by God so that we will grow in the grace of God and so that we will live usefully for Christ. He told us that God has given to us absolutely everything that we need for real life and real godliness. We don't lack anything. He has made us partakers, sharers in His divine nature so that we will be bearers of that, na- of that same divine nature to a lost and dying world. Now after telling us how marvelously God has equipped us for that blessed assignment, Peter then exhorted us to be sure to firm up our confidence in God's calling and choosing of us who believe in Jesus Christ so that we will not forget or lose sight of that calling. Because if we do, we will fail to put on the characteristics of godliness and we will fail to be useful and fruitful for God. Now, all of that in those 11 verses was preamble. It was preparation for a dramatic contrast that Peter now sets before us in the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. That contrast is between the true prophetic word and the false prophetic word. This morning, we're going to look at the first half of that contrast, the true word of the prophets. And then next, in the next week or two, we'll consider what he says in chapter 2 about the false teaching of false prophets. But Peter begins and ends that stark contrast by giving us what I call his bucket list. He tells us that there's something he seriously wants to see happen before his spirit departs his body. And he tells us that he knows that's imminent. He knows that that's going to happen soon. He gives us his bucket list once in chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, and then he gives it to us again in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, at both ends of this contrast that comes right in between. There's just one thing on his list. Just one. In verse 15, he says that before his earthly life ends, he wants with all his heart to see the people of God become so filled with the knowledge of the true Word of God that they will be able to call to mind the powerful, transforming truths contained in that Word at a moment's notice. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter that I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Now what is it that Peter is so bent on getting us to remember? It's words. It's the words spoken by the Old Testament prophets and the words that Jesus commanded the New Testament apostles to speak, to write down. Peter is not saying that we all need to get out our red-letter edition Bibles and focus all our attention only on the words that came out of Jesus' mouth when He was here during His earthly ministry. 
He's talking about every word having to do with Jesus that God delivered to his people through his faithful prophets and apostles in both the Old and New Testaments. How much of the Bible does that describe? How much of the Bible is the word of Christ? The word concerning Christ? All of it. I asked that last week, I know. It's worth repeating. (laughs) All of it. Again, look at what Jesus said to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Look where he went to tell them about himself. The whole Old Testament. Peter's telling us that you and I have a compelling and inescapable need to know the true, sure Word of God. The same Word that he declared in his first letter to be the imperishable seed through which we were born again. The pure, unadulterated milk by which we who have been reborn now grow up in respect to our salvation. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. It's a familiar passage. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse. <laughs> Anybody seen that happening? Deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue Continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, all Scripture is inspired, literally God-breathed. And, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So according to that passage, how did we come to have that faith of the same value as Peter that he talked about earlier in 2 Peter 1? Through the Scriptures. How do we come to be equipped for every good work? Through the Scriptures. Peter uses two words here for the writings, the Scriptures. Both of them have to do with words written down. Paul says that those words through which we became saved through faith in Christ and through which we are now equipped to live for Christ are words that were breathed out by God. (laughs) And how much of the Scripture is he talking about? He tells us all of it. Now, Peter has the very same exalted view of the written Word of God that Paul has. And by the way, we'll see in chapter 3 of this letter that Peter includes the writings of Paul in the sacred Scriptures. These two apostles are not saying that a Christian who doesn't know everything in the Bible is not equipped to live the Christian life. What they're saying is that everything in the Bible equips us to live the Christian life. Even if all you know of the Scriptures is the amazingly good news that you who deserved only God's eternal condemnation have been cleansed, forgiven, 
and given everlasting life through simple faith, trust in Jesus Christ. If you're counting on His death as the completed, finished payment of the eternal penalty for your sin, if you're counting on His righteousness as your only and all-sufficient merit before God that guarantees you life in His presence forever, even if that's all you know of the Bible, you already know enough to live a life joyfully and gratefully sold out to Christ. But beloved, the whole Bible is the word concerning Christ. It's all used by God to impart to us the wisdom that brings salvation. And that includes the salvation that's currently underway in the life of every believer. The work by which God conforms us to Christ day by day. All of it is used by God to equip us for real usefulness to Him as we speak God's truth to others, as we correct falsehood, as we rebuke sin, as we build one another up in true godliness and in the true personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God to show us our Savior and Master and to make us like Him. Every page of it brings us to behold Him more fully, to know Him more intimately, to trust Him more utterly, to follow Him more closely, to obey Him more fervently, and to be more powerfully useful to Him every day of our lives on this earth. Peter is talking here about the very heartbeat of true godliness. Brother Jim Ellis mentioned last week the Latin phrase sine qua non, without which not. It refers to something that is absolutely indispensable. That's what Peter's talking about here. There is no salvation apart from the Word of God. There is no growth in grace apart from the Word of God. There is no personal knowledge of Jesus Christ apart from the Word of God. There is no usefulness to God apart from the Word of God. So, if you're challenging a fellow believer to be a useful servant of Christ without earnestly calling that believer to know and to be always mindful of the Word of God, that's like handing your penniless teenager the keys to a car with an empty gas tank and telling him to have a great day at work when his work is 15 miles away. He can't do what you're telling him to do because he's not equipped. We can debate all day long about how to motivate Christians to personally and regularly dig into God's amazing Word. But the bottom line, the bottom line is that we as the children of God must describe to the Bible the value that God Himself ascribes to the Bible. God calls His people to know and to act upon His Word. He calls us right here through Peter to know it so well that the very words of Scripture come readily to our minds at any time. He calls us to know it so well that it becomes our grid for interpreting everything. 
In a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote to a group at Oxford University, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's the right grid. There will never be a more compelling case for you and I to do anything that we do in this life than the case that God Himself has set before us to know His Word. That case is far more compelling than the logic that drives you to eat your next physical meal. When Satan tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread to end His 40-day fast... Jesus, repeating the words that God spoke through Moses more than 1,400 years earlier, said to Satan, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is the only real food to sustain real life. Is that compelling enough for us to act on? We need to be reminded often not only of what's in the Word, but of our God-given assignment to keep what's in His Word in the thoughts that we actually think every hour of every day. To keep His Word in our immediate awareness all the time. God commissioned Peter to give us that reminder. But that task of reminding doesn't end with Peter and it doesn't end with any of the other writers of Scripture. God also commissioned me to remind you and He commissioned you to remind me. In Colossians 3.16, Paul said, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And the you is plural, it's y'all. With all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another. God's Word is to take up residence in each of us abundantly, richly. Not merely so that you or I will individually be well equipped to live the Christ-centered life, but so that we may build up one another in that same transforming knowledge of God's Word. So that the whole body of Christ will grow up to a mature man to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ Himself. Three times in four verses, verses 12 to 15, 2 Peter 1, Peter speaks of reminding or remembering. He says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, to stir you up by way of reminder. Jim Hummel used those very words this morning in worship. That you may be able to call these things to mind. Literally, that you may be able to call these things to remembrance. In the first two verses of chapter 3, Peter says he wrote his two letters to the churches, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord spoken by your apostles. (laughs) There's a whole lot of reminding and remembering going on there. The English word remind defines itself beautifully if you put a little dash after the E. To remind is to re-mind. It is to make mindful again. It implies repetition of something that is already known. 
Even though Peter's two epistles certainly expand on previous revelation that we find in the Scriptures, Peter makes it clear that he's not essentially writing these letters to the churches to introduce a bunch of new information, new revelation. He says he's writing to remind the saints of truths that they already know and in which they have already become established. Why would he bother with that? Because we forget. I hear far too many believers these days speak as if churches like ours are putting too much emphasis, too high a priority on exposure to the Bible. That one can have just too much of that. They point out that believers who lived in the Old Testament times and even in the days of the early church, in fact, even until fairly recently in historical terms, had far less opportunity to be exposed to the Bible on a regular or comprehensive basis than you and I do. And yet, godly men and women in every age of God's people have been powerfully used by God. So what's the point? The same people point out that most Christians today already have far more knowledge than they're acting on. So they conclude that we believers don't need to spend more time reading and studying the Bible. We just need to have more obedience to what we already know. As if one of those gets in the way of the other. That line of argument sounds very pious and the last part of it is absolutely correct. We need more obedience to what we already know. But the first part that you and I don't need to spend any more time in the Bible, is absolute nonsense. And if I I could use a stronger word, I would. It's nonsense for a number of reasons, but I'll give you just one. We are forgetful people. And the forgetfulness that's at issue here is not essentially that if you sat one of us down and asked us what the Bible had to say about some particularly important matter, we couldn't cough up a good answer. The forgetfulness that Peter's talking about is a failure to be mindful right now of the transforming truths of God's Word that we already know. We go through the day with our minds full of garbage instead of with the Word of God. And there's no shortage of the garbage. The essential problem that Peter is addressing here isn't merely, I don't know or I've forgotten what the Bible has to say about that. It's, I haven't given any thought to what the Bible has to say about that for so long that I might as well not know it. The Bible is filled with vivid reminders, with memorials. Everything from rainbows to place names to names of people to special days and religious calendars to priestly garments are all designed to bring important things to mind about God. The numerous Old Testament memorials served as excellent teaching aids for parents bringing up their children in the knowledge of the Lord, but they also served a very important purpose in the lives of those parents. They reminded God's people to actively think about what they already knew concerning God's 
holy character, His miraculous deeds, His fierce judgments, and His very great deliverances. Think about this. When an average Israelite was walking along the banks of the Jordan River, the west banks of the Jordan River, and came upon a pile of 12 great stones stacked up on that, on that shore near Gilgal, that average Israelite already knew the story, probably heard it hundreds of times. He knew that those were the stones that had been taken up from the middle of the Jordan when God had miraculously stopped the river's flow and dried up the riverbed so that His people could cross over into the promised land in the days of Joshua. But actually seeing that pile of rocks brought that great miracle back to the top of that Israelite's mind. If his personal awareness of God's power to deliver had slipped away a little bit, had waned, that vivid reminder would once again stir up in him the awareness that his God is mighty to save. It would encourage him to trust God with the concerns of that very day. You see what I'm talking about? It's the difference between knowing and reckoning. Between knowing what is true and counting it to be true now. Beloved, that's why you and I need to be, that's one of the many reasons you and I need to be continually in the Word of God. Even those who know it best. Not only do we need to know everything we can possibly know of God's revelation concerning His Son, we need to have our minds stirred up in the midst of the struggles and temptations of the daily spiritual battle that God has set before us so that we will be ever mindful of God's amazing grace toward us in Jesus Christ. So we'll be trusting Him, not yesterday, but now, moment by moment, undistracted, unimpaired by all the other stuff that bombards our thinking all the time. We need to be reminded today and every other day. Okay, so in chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, Peter gives us the first of two declarations of his one-item bucket list. His desire to be used by God before he dies to remind the saints of the things that God has revealed to us so that we will continually call them to mind. Now, we weren't there when he had this bucket list, but he intended it for us too. (laughs) And we know from his second declaration of that same desire, that same objective at the beginning of chapter 3, that the truth that he's talking about, that he's reminding us of, is all of the Scriptures, Old and New Testament. We need to be ready to recall to mind the whole Word of God. The whole Bible. And if you don't know the whole Bible, that just simply means you've got a great assignment. When I was 16 years old and came to Christ, I knew right away I didn't know enough of the Word of God. But man, I wanted to. And for 44 years since then, it's been a process of discovery that will not end until I stand in the presence of my Savior. It won't even end then. You think we're ever going to get our hands around God? 
Now in verses 16 to 21 of chapter 1, Peter defends the credibility of these same Scriptures that he's calling us to remember. A little later in chapter 2, he's going to give us a stern warning about false teachers who seek to deceive and mislead the people of God. But first, he has some important things to tell us about the true prophetic word. In verses 16 to 19, he gives us his own personal testimony of how God made the sure witness of the Old Testament prophets even stronger. He tells us about an amazing thing that he and James and John had seen and heard that added yet another powerful witness to the already established witness of the Old Testament saints concerning Christ. And that amazing thing was a first-hand encounter of Christ's majestic glory. A glory that Peter, James, and John got to see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears. And the event that Peter's talking about here, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, involved multiple eyewitnesses who not only only saw Christ standing and talking with Moses and Elijah, two Old Testament prophets who had died many centuries earlier, But Peter, James, and John also heard with their own ears the direct witness of God the Father declaring of Jesus, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That declaration by the Father matched up with all that had been written concerning the Christ, the promised Messiah, by dozens of prophets of Yahweh over a period of nearly 1,500 years before that point. That's a lot of people saying the same thing about the same person over a very long period of time. By the way, guys, the Quran depends on the the veracity, the truthfulness of one human being. So does the Book of Mormon. This book depends on the attested reliability of dozens of men living over over 15 centuries. You think there's any comparison between this book and those? A Mormon lady asked me once why I hadn't read the book, read the Book of Mormon. I said, I can't think of a reason why I should. And I gave her that comparison. Peter says that the apostles' own personal witness of the transfiguration of Christ made the words of the prophets stronger or more sure. Now, I want to point out here that some commentators interpret verse 19 to mean that the Old Testament prophecies of Christ were more sure than Peter's own eyewitness testimony. That was the more sure thing, was the prophets. Now, I respectfully depart from that understanding of verse 19 for several reasons. And, and my understanding is not the minority position. It's, it's what most commentators agree with. But I'll give you just one reason. At the beginning of Luke's Gospel, he makes a big deal out of the fact that he got his account of the life of Jesus from those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. The Word being Christ. And who had handed down that personal witness directly to Luke and to Mark and to others Certainly neither Luke nor any of the the other Gospel writers would argue that the apostles' testimony concerning Christ was less sure 
or less authoritative than the writings of the Old Testament prophets. No. What Peter is saying here is that the apostles' own witness of the transfigured Christ made even stronger, even more fully established the already strong, already sure witness of the Old Testament prophets. And at the beginning of chapter 3, again, he makes it clear that it is the sure word of both of both the prophets and apostles that we need to know and remember. He says of that sure word that we do well to pay attention to it. Now, at first glance, that sounds like an understatement. (laughs) We do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now, the kind of attention that he's talking about is the attention is the attention I illustrated at the beginning of this message. It's the kind of attention you'd pay to that one flashlight in a pitch dark and exceedingly hazardous cave. Except that Peter is talking about a far more pervasive darkness and a far more dangerous place than that cave. And he's talking about a perfect light. He uses an unusual word here for darkness. This is the only place it occurs in the New Testament. It's a hellish word. It's a word that refers to what some of the Greek lexicons call a miserable darkness. The dark place that Peter's talking about is a place of danger and evil and misery devoid of the light of God. Even the noonday sun on a cloudless day cannot chase away that darkness. There's only one light that can. And it's the marvelous light of God's Word. Peter is exhorting every believer to fiercely guard and to cling very, very closely to the only true light shining in this dark, dismal, morally depraved, godless place in which we must temporarily dwell in order to represent Christ. This is an urgent assignment, beloved. Peter wraps up his defense of the Scriptures of the true prophetic word in verses 20 and 21 by telling us very specifically how this word came to exist. He begins verse 20 by saying, but know this first of all. And when a passage in the Bible starts with those words, we need to sit up and pay attention to what is just about to be said. Peter is going to make one of the most important declarations about the Bible that you'll ever hear. So if you're not already very familiar with it, or even if you are, Please pay close attention to the last two verses of chapter 1. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. He's using the word prophecy here in the broad sense of all that has been written by the prophets and apostles. He's talking about everything that we find in the Scriptures in the Bible. There are two entities that the Bible calls the Word. One is the Bible itself, the written Word. 
The other is Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, who makes the Father known. Both are declared to be alive, living. Both are declared to be powerful, active. In both cases, there's a combination of the divine and the human. And in both cases, the divine so controls and overwhelms the human that there is absolutely no impurity, no corruption in the Word. The Word in both cases is entirely pure and unadulterated, untainted by our sin or by the curse. Rather than being cursed by its exposure to us, it purifies everything that it touches. He purifies everything that He touches. In short, in both cases, the Word is found to be entirely holy, entirely set apart from all that is common and cursed, entirely set apart unto God. God so superintended the writing of the sacred Scriptures that the end result, the original writings of the prophets and apostles, are without corruption. God used fallen mortal men to write what we find in His Word. He didn't dictate the words. He used the vocabularies and the writing styles of the individual writers. But the Holy Spirit moved them along like the wind moves along the sails of a ship to propel the ship. He superintended everything about the process so that the result was His result. It's His Word breathed out by the living God. The result was not in any way the contrivance of the men who wrote it. It contains none of their sinful prejudices or corrupt ideas. It's not their Word. It's God's Word. Again, this was Paul's declaration of the same truth concerning the Bible that we just read. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's powerful stuff. God knows what every passage in the Bible means, and we are accountable to all that the Bible declares. The modern or postmodern notion that God somehow gives us the latitude to ascribe whatever meaning to the words of Scripture that we find acceptable is a satanic dodge to excuse our rejection of God's truth in favor of our own pathetic imitation of truth. God's Word infused with supernatural power by the Holy Spirit who wrote it, lays our hearts bare before God and judges us. It's never the other way around. When you come across people (laughs) who are applying their logic to pass judgment on the Word of God instead of submitting their logic to the Word of God, you you can be absolutely assured that they are displaying their foolishness. Because there is no greater foolishness. There is no greater foolishness. We know what's true, not because we know truth intrinsically. 
Not because we find truth in ourselves. Without the Word of God, we are fools of the highest order. There is no truth to be found in us until God brings us face to face with His gracious revelation of Himself. Our hearts are the darkest and most dangerous of all caves. Completely, completely devoid of light. There's only one way that you and I ever know what's true. That anyone on this earth ever knows what's true. The writer of Hebrews told us what that is. Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 3. God spoke. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. God has spoken. If He had not, every man, woman, and child would spend eternity in miserable darkness. But He has spoken through His faithful prophets and apostles and most fully and most clearly and most beautifully in His Son. The very One who is the focus of all that the prophets and apostles in both Testaments wrote. We are bombarded with untruth from every quarter, all day, every day, so it will not do for us to hear the truth once and then complacently declare that we know it. I've said this before, but anytime someone says to you, oh, I've read the Bible, you get to tell them that's a good start. We must be reminded of God's truth continually. Our minds must be saturated with the truth. For how long? Peter says, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. I believe he's talking here about the coming glorious day of which he just spoke in verse 11. The day of our entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who revealed himself to John as the bright and morning star. God told the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and the New Testament apostle John that when that day comes, we'll have no need for a flashlight. We'll have no need for the sun or the moon or the stars because the Lord Himself will be our perfect and only light. Let me read just the first three verses of Isaiah 60. In these verses, God is addressing the new Jerusalem. The place that is coming that Jesus is going to bring with them when He comes back. The place in which He will dwell with His people forever. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and His glory will appear upon you. 
and nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Until that day, beloved, this word is his lamp shining in the darkness. So let's cling to it very, very tightly. Our God and Savior, in you there is no darkness at all. Only the purest and most perfect light. By your amazing grace in Jesus Christ, you pluck us lost sinners out of the miserable darkness and you bring us into that marvelous light. The day is coming when your light will be the only light that we behold and there will be no darkness. Until then, Father, draw us continually to the one beautiful lamp shining in this present darkness, the light of your sure and certain word. We ask this in the name of the living word, Jesus Christ. Amen.